You know what we haven't done in a while? No. We haven't done some impressions in a while. Oh, God. Oh, no. That'd be a great one. And what are we doing for 1950s impressions? For the 50s? You know what was very popular in the 50s? No. The Looney Tunes. Racism. <laughs> and racism. <laughs> so I think we'd, we'd start this oh, episode. Oh, no. With I know, I know our, where you're going with this, Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> with some of our best Looney Tunes impressions. Brandon, which Looney Tune do you want to be? Which Goonie uh, Tune? Sh- should I be like uh, Bugs Bunny or... I, I feel like I could do Tweety Bird or Bugs Bunny or something. I can't do a Sylvester or a Daffy, but I know who's going to do Sylvester or Daffy. <laughs> I want you to be uh, the Tasmanian Devil. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I can do that. You can, Brandon can do that. <laughs> Chris, who do you want to be? I think you'd do a good Bugs Bunny. Maybe. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. All right. I feel like our scenario are like our impressions go like Chris. No offense, you got the worst impressions. (laughs) You are not one to talk. No, no, you can't. No, 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 you can't do that. But then I'm, I'm just, I'm like. I'm just as bad, you see, but I'm a okay. little bit better. But then, then Ethan is like God tier. Like he, yes. he, he belongs in like a voice acting factory. <laughs> All right. The scenario is, okay, I'm going to be Daffy Duck, obviously. Um, let's see. The scenario is the Tasmanian devil just got back from a one day trip from Orlando. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So I'm just playing myself. <laughs> yeah, but you're going to describe your trip as the Tasmanian devil. <laughs> okay. All right. I don't know how I'm going to start the scene because there's no real like intro music like the Simpsons or Family Guy, so we're just we're just going to go from here. Are you So Tav? <laughs> Looks like you just got back from the airport. Where have you been, buddy? Where have you been? Where have you been off to? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> What was that bug? So you were saying something over there? I was just asking. Alright, I think. Maybe right. Maybe I'm the worst at the impressions. <laughs> Excuse me, Taz, but it seems when you guy came to pick you up at the airport, you seemed to have slammed my penis in the car door. Alright, welcome back to Stack, <laughs> everyone. <laughs> Alright, we're done. No, that's it. Looney Tunes that's how I'm ruined. doing the episode. That's that, how I'm doing the episode. That's that's fucking all. That's all, folks. All right. Welcome back to Stacked, everybody. Episode fifty-nine of the podcast. Uh, we're back with our decades series. We are going back to the decades here. It's been a while since we've done some decades, maybe. Um, and today we are talking about the nineteen fifties. The uh, the the what what do they call the de- that decade? Don't they call it like the? Uh, it wasn't the swinging fifties because. No, that's the twenties. Oh, I was gonna say this. Oh 60s. no, that the roaring twenties, the swinging sixties. That's right. Yeah. I don't know. The fifties is when everyone stayed at home and was just racist. I feel a boomer. You know? Yeah, they were all yeah. Boomers. the awkward fifties. The baby boomer. No, they 50s. weren't. Yeah, the boomer generation. They they just had made babies and fucking yelled at black people. That's all they did. Uh, <laughs> sorry grandma <laughs> uh, but yeah the 50s was also a 
very good time for movies, I gotta say. Lots of great yeah, golden. Lots of classics. Golden decade. Came out in this decade. Um, so I just want to know, like, with every decade, sort of, we... We sort of own, pick our own criteria, you know, for what make considers a quintessential film of a decade. So, Brandon, I want to ask you, like, what was your process of going through and picking out, like, what is a quintessential 50s film? I feel like the 50s encompasses, like, a, a lot of genres and shifts in the way film kind of operated. Because if you look at, like, the 40s and 30s, the 20s through 40s, which I'm sure we'll get to, the 20s were, like, film's foundations in terms of being a feature while the 30s were like trying to figure out sound and color and like all that and then the 40s were like the acting was kind of melodramatic and all over the place and while in the 50s you sort of have that it's kind of like you're starting to see the evolution of film into like different genres and like ways that we see film as today where it's like less melodramatic acting and it feels like more like people are like normally day to day you know and it's kind of like that first decade that feels like it's imitating life and it's not overdoing it at all and i love that you know that's the great part about the 50s is how diverse it is in terms of its film lineups right yeah 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 that's good points uh chris what about you bud funnily enough every single one of my films turned out to be a melodrama this week so it kind of okay. ca- counters whatever Brandon just said. Well, um, I, I think the 50s are like the only like... The, you were just like, oh, the 40s, so melodramatic, but we move forward in the 50s. And we have. Everything is 50s. We have, though. We have uh, moved forward from melodrama. The thing is, you took the a melodrama me- class in the 50s. Yeah, the melodrama peaked in the 50s, Brandon. If you took that no, class, you might know a thing or two about that. But I guess you didn't. But, we're not watching all right, all right. The, like, the rest of the- Ooh, oh, and, and you you didn't take Professor Fury's class, Brandon. You have no authority on this, Mr. Ooh. I watch a movie every day. Oh! Why are we getting no angry here? What the hell? Like, dude, you like... just said my impressions are shit. I get to throw <laughs> back at you for one. Oh. My impressions are bad, too. What yeah, but you're like, this is the worst. Oh, my hell. God. Okay. Uh, we're, okay. We're, we're up to a spicy fucking Why episode is this today. episode so, like... It's the spicy 50s. It's the hot 50s, I guess. (laughs) Hot seat. Oh, my God. All right. Well, uh, enough of the the foreplay here. Let's let's get into the the real spicy stuff. We're just going to be actually talking about these movies. So, uh, of course, as always, let's go over the rules of the show. Once a week, we set a topic or theme and go our own separate ways to construct our own three-film stack. Then after a week, we come back here on the podcast and share our own stacks one film at a time. Then at the end of the show, we'll mix and match our nine films, make the ultimate decision, one quintessential three-film stack where you're checking out this hypothetical video store. All right. Uh, Chris went first last week, so Brandon, Mr. Yes. Talking about movies, the movie man himself. Uh, yeah. Co-host of Stack Podcast, uh, recently was in Orlando. Uh, what's your first 50 movie? <laughs> yeah. Very recently. Uh, I'm picking The Wrong Man, an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Have you guys heard of this one? The Wrong no, Man. Okay. I have heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Okay, so it's a Henry Fonda movie. Uh it's based on a true story. Uh and it's and it's got a it's got a lot of fans. Like John Luc Godard really liked it and Martin Scorsese really liked it. And it's basically follows this guy. And I feel like you can't choose like a 
personally anyway. I can't you can't choose a, a 50s or 60s movie without mentioning Alfred Hitchcock's works because like he he seems like an instrumental person for the era. And it's basically this lesser known thriller from him where a guy is being tracked by police and they think he did a crime because of like a misidentification of him at a bank. And so it, it tells this guy's story over the course of like weeks and months as like he's trying to prove himself uh, not guilty of the crime that everybody else is like saying that he did, even though like he didn't do it because like, that's the whole point of the movie, the wrong man. It plays, it does play with your kind of perception of the protagonist and whether or not you have not necessarily a narrator who's untrustable, but an untrustworthy protagonist, which I really like. And it's also like a very fascinating movie to see from this guy's perspective, because as far as you're concerned, he didn't do it. And like, that's, that's crazy because you're like, this guy's like the nicest guy and putting like Henry Fonda, who is like the star of the 1950s and forties out there who always played the everyman good guy character with the exception of uh, once upon a time in the West. It's Ooh. kind of like an like insane experience to go through, but yeah, it's a really good movie. Uh, and it, it kind of stretches the term melodrama a little bit it's not a melodrama but it is a film noir so oh yeah this sounds this sounds good i mean i'm always down for some henry fonda like he is like come on like i don't know he's just he's the it's funny he's like the righteous man of classic hollywood but in this movie he's the wrong man you know Uh, he's a he's a um what is it? What's a good term for Henry Fonda? He's a good leading man, like a classic Hollywood leading man. He is. Yeah. And like he always plays characters except for one spawn time at Hollywood, like with the correct like a like in the, Hollywood? The right yeah. No, once upon a time in the West, sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. uh with like the correct moral compass, you know, and someone you can always rely on morally. But it seems here that things are like a bit you know, a bit more uh you know the gray areas here you know and i really love the if you look at letterbox i love the background where just everyone's pointing at him he's like he's kind of like smirk he's like okay stop pointing at me i'm sorry but yeah anyways good pick good pick i mean we're gonna talk about hitchcock very soon uh and i have to agree that he is uh a fundamental director of the 1950s and it would have been very weird if we did not mention him at least once in the show chris what do you think about the wrong man i am a big fan of hitchcock's works uh at least from the few that i've seen um i have actually never even heard of the wrong man um but i've always kind of admired hitchcock for like especially for his time he was such a pivotal director which is why i think like He's kind of, he, like him as a director is kind of synonymous with the fifties and maybe the sixties as well. Um, and yeah, I've like, I like there were multiple times when I was planning my picks for this episode that I heavily considered putting in a Hitchcock film. Um, and yeah, I haven't heard of this one, but I trust that it's Hitchcock. So I'm certain that it is at least of quality. So yeah, good pick. Hell yeah. All right. Well, uh, Speaking of Hitchcock, I'm going to do my favorite Hitchcock movie that came from the 1950s. It is the 1959 North by Northwest. This movie is, he takes, Hitchcock takes all of his uh, 
ability to enthrall you in suspense from his thrillers and put that into this more I don't know it's it's not it's not really espionage it's not really a political thriller like it's it's hard to really pinpoint what what kind of thriller this movie is you know because it's just like it's just a dude who is just mistaken for someone else and he's like plunged into this world of um you know of espionage and stuff like that and it is just such an enthralling entertaining film and one that I feel like it feels ahead of its time. It feels like 30 years ahead of its time. It feels like a 70s film to me, you know? Um, just the, the set pieces that this movie pulls off. I'm talking like the stuff on Mount Rushmore. I'm talking the stuff with the crop duster, you know? Um, and the soundtrack is so good. Cary Grant, this might be my favorite performance of his. Just how how much of a leading man he is, but he's also kind of sleazy, but he's also like, what am I doing in this situation? Like, how do I get out of this? And like, but he's also curious about to go deeper, you know? Um, it's just, it's such a fun film. Uh, I remember watching it when I was really tired one night and like, it woke me up immediately. And I just, I stayed up for the whole thing and it was so much fun. Uh, Chris, have you seen North by Northwest? No, but I do know that this is that, that film where, uh, there's like that tunnel innuendo, which I think is hilarious. You know, when the thing goes through the tunnel. You know what I'm talking about? The train? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Near the end. <laughs> That's right. Near the end. Yeah. It, lots of, you know, lots of playing on stuff that Hitchcock does. He likes a lot of that, a lot of that visual storytelling, even if it's <laughs> mixed with the percussion like coach. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon, I know you love this movie yeah. like me. What do you, what do you got to yeah. say? I mean, I thought about picking this or Rear Window for Hitchcock because I wanted at least one of his films to represent I forgot what your career window came out so I don't even know if that was a 50s movie but I definitely considered it um but North by Net Northwest is also one of my favorite Hitchcock movies it was like I remember it's the first one I remember loving uh as a kid uh because I think this was one of my first and he was like it was super exciting to watch this movie transpire as like this guy is like taken on this journey throughout america and he's like being chased and he doesn't know why because like you're in the same place as him like and i think that's a really good thing about hitchcock is like how he positions characters like with the wrong man and this movie is like you're placed in this like role where you're like i don't know what's happening but i'm like totally along for the ride with it you know the Mm -hmm. technicolor is really great in this movie too like it's got beautiful colors in it i think hitchcock is like one of those directors who really knew how to like make that jump from black and white cinematography to something more vibrant because you don't often see like thrillers and noirs and like this kind of look you know and it's so distinct and nice uh another thing is like it's totally against cary grant's casting to cast him in a role like this because he in the 40s and 30s was like known for his comedic roles whereas here he's playing something so dramatic and like action-packed that it's like it doesn't really feel like a Cary Grant movie. And I, I kind of really respect Hitchcock for choosing somebody as charismatic as Grant for something as dramatic. And like, I wouldn't say slow cause it is a very fast paced movie, but something so dramatic for this guy. Yeah. And that's sort of, I don't know. That's sort of something you get to see like these seeds, a plan of, of, of a, like a comedic actor being casted in these like large blockbuster roles that I think was done more and more and more. And especially today, you know, I don't know what it is. It's just like comedians just have a really good way of being charming, you know, which like just helps you be enthralled in the spectacle. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, this was like this is my only uh, like Hollywood movie pick. Like, just the big, just when I think of like a '50s blockbuster, I think of this movie. You know, uh, it just it's got everything. It's got star power. It's got great set pieces, and it looks fucking beautiful. Um, yeah, North by Northwest. There we go. All right, Chris. What is your first melodrama <laughs> of your melodrama <laughs> stack? So when I put together this stack and I started writing my notes, I t- accidentally kind of turned my selections into like a miniature lecture on melodrama, at least as far as I've Ooh. learned when I was in Fury's class. Yeah. So before I get into my first film, I think the main thing that I want to like work into like my discussions with you guys when we're talking about this is the genre as in terms of its form and function and specifically in the sense that like so melodrama as a genre is like at least in the way that i see it is primarily concerned with on the most baseline level evoking intense emotions from its audience but melodrama is often if not always most concerned with um intensifying those emotions by relating its central story to fundamental prominent social issues um, and usually issues considered that are commonly like or universally considered um, like like it's a clear defined line between which what which perspective is right and which perspective is wrong. So, for example, Titanic, social class, Ali fear it's a soul, race issues in the mood for love, identity. So, of course, every melodrama can stretch far beyond these confines, but largely are kind of concerned with evoking intense emotions through social, through these social issues. Right. So the first film that I want to highlight is probably one of my favorite melodrama films from 1955, by, directed by Douglas Sirk. It's All That Heaven Allows. Ooh, um, it's, yeah, so it's this movie about, um, well, first of all, have either of you seen this? I have. Uh, no. No. Hope... You, Ethan, you have? Yeah, I have. Um, so it's this movie about this really affluent widow who falls in love with her with, yeah, who falls in love with her gardener and of course uh being the 1950s she faces judgment and social exile from her very snobbish upper middle class family and social circle and often that is contrasted by this kind of acceptance and carefree kindness that you see in the lower class which is the the gardener's friends and family and all that and mm-hmm. immediately when people see this movie, the first thing they think of is actually Titanic, I think, because fundamentally that's the exact same thing. Um, but unlike Titanic, which I still think is actually a fantastic movie, this movie was made in the 1950s and critiques the social structures of its time. So, yeah, it's this very gushy and very emotionally charged classical melodrama. Um, it's filled with cliche and this kind of extravagant expression of heartfelt heartfeltiness so it's very gushy and very like like you know all kind of it's all if they don't like leave anything behind the service it's all very like in your face emotional which obviously isn't everyone's cup of tea but you guys know me and you know that i eat shit like that up um yeah yeah so that's all that heaven allows what do you think ethan i know you've seen this movie so um yeah i think this was one of those movies where uh, we watched it for film aesthetics, not like it wasn't in the core curriculum that every film aesthetics students watch. This was like something we watched in class for my specific class, you know, um, and, you know, I think I was kind of a shithead uh, 
freshman student where I was like, eh, what this is this is just so, this is so soapy and bubbly, you know, what the fuck's going on? And I originally gave it a not a great score, but like the more you think about like what this movie is communicating of um the social issues that it's playing at with both of its leads really, like it's something that's you it's pretty unheard of in the nineteen fifties. First of all, you have Jane Wyman as like discussing what it means to be an older woman, an older an older woman, an older woman, you know? And like Plural not, she's like, plural woman. It's older women, yeah. she's little women. Uh <laughs> uh but just like navigating with that and like what it means to be an older star in Hollywood too in this sort of melodrama format and like sort of her struggles in this film of falling in love with a younger, like this big hunk rock Hudson, like sort of goes outside the frame of the film with the judgments that she faces, you know, because people will look at this old woman. And she's like, what, what is she doing? Like, this is not this type of role she's supposed to be playing, you know, but like this film plays that and questions that and questions the viewer of why they make these judgments, you know, both inside uh, looking at stars, but also in like our own society, you know, and then you have Rock Hudson, which, like, I think <clears throat> was completely not really known of until, like, his death because he was, uh, I think he was a closeted gay man, if I remember correctly. Yeah, uh, he is. I remember and that. And he died from AIDS. Um, yeah. But just, like, seeing how he is sexualized in this movie and knowing that context is just, like, it creates a whole other layer to the story, you know? Um, because he is such a typical macho character and seeing how he struggles with that in this movie is also sort of like an underlying message of how him struggling with his own sexuality and how he's perceived outside the frame of the film, you know, um, very fascinating movie. It's a beautiful movie. The oranges and blues that they use, like the scenes during the winter time, sheesh, it, it is a gorgeous looking movie. Uh, I'd love to actually rewatch it one day. I think my my opinion on it would change greatly. And yeah, this is a great pick. If, when we're talking melodramas, like Douglas Sirk, like what Hitchcock is to thrillers, I think Douglas Sirk is to melodramas in the fifties. I don't know if you guys would agree with mm. that, but I think I think I that, think like, yeah, I would agree with that. He was like he was the guy for this genre, and this one's pretty damn good. Uh, Brandon, what what have you heard about from this movie? I know. You haven't seen it, but like, yeah, it's know, talked about in every film school class I've like sort of been in, and it's like always like, uh, as Chris sort of mentioned, like the peak of melodrama was this movie, because after like it seemed like in the fifty late fifties early sixties like you started to like lean away from that like sort of thing, uh, so it was like kind of like that peak, and I've heard a lot about the colors of this movie and how bright it uses like technicolors like you said the oranges and blues i remember we watched a scene can't remember in what class but it was from our one of our freshman year classes uh where like they showed them in like a it's like a large farm yeah. area it looks yeah. like it looks like a lodge like, like they're looking cabin. at a deer yeah oh. yeah through a window and, and it's just and like, yeah and it feels very nostalgic for the time so and, and nostalgia is often associated with like sad happy memories mm-hmm. uh which definitely has its like 
has its bearings. So, I mean, it, it looks like an interesting movie, uh, and I love the 1950s, so I'd love to check it out, but just haven't had the opportunity yet. Definitely should. Definitely should. All right, let's go into the second round here. Brandon, what's your number two? All right, my number two pick is a science fiction movie. I wanted to encompass a lot of genres here. So first we had thriller, and now we have science fiction. I have The Day the Earth Stood Still. Okay, yeah. Fascinating movie. Let's talk about it. This movie shocked me when I saw it because I had seen a lot of 50 sci-fi from like mystery science theater and parodied in other movies like how it's like very low budget and stuff like that and i'm a fan of like old doctor who so like i i'm aware of what old sci-fi is and how like you shouldn't really take it as super seriously as modern sci-fi but this movie plays upon so many different things that i think are impactful for not only the 50s but in modern day too which is why i'm really disappointed because i remember seeing the remake first like years ago and being so bored and annoyed by that movie that i was like i don't want to watch the re- the original probably because it's like a b-movie version of that and then i right. watch it and i'm like shocked by how like intimate and like kind it is and like how it's about like an alien trying to understand the people around him and the people aren't really kind of ready for that you know and there's like parallels to our real world with how we use technology and view like others in society right. you know and it also relates to how humanity responds to like an alien landing on earth and or an un- unidentified flying object and what that means you know and it, it's very mature for a 50s movie because usually like i said with these movies they're like b movies and they're mm-hmm. like kind of funny to watch now and you can kind of make fun of them but here i was sitting there enthralled from start to finish about this alien's plan, his relationship to the people of Earth, as well as like what exactly was happening with the other characters that are more human and relatable. I, I was just very impacted by it. So, yeah. yeah, no, this is a good pick. Um, it's definitely, um, one of the I, I love 50s B science fiction, like that's just I eat that shit up. Like, I'm talking like, uh, you know, I love the original War of the Worlds. I love uh, the movie Them with the giant ants, you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon, all that stuff. Very good, uh, very unique decade for these kind of movies, you know, and it's sort of, even though I didn't include any movies like that on my stack, it's sort of what I think of when I think of the decade, but like, I just had to pick some better movies. Um, this one's good though. Like, like you said, like, it's such a gentle science fiction movie for this decade, you know? like it's it's presented through with this po- like if you look at the poster there's like the hand crushing the earth the robot like blasting <laughs> shit you're like oh my god but in reality it's just like the alien's just like a normal guy and he just mm. he's just going on this like this you know this intimate journey just through the everyday american life you know and discovering like what's kind of what's what's really good about us and what's not you know yeah um mm-hmm. And it just, it's an, it's an interesting, it's, it's slow, but it's a good slow, you know? Yeah. Like people might not be attracted to its slowness because of its genre, but it, I I think it breaks that genre coding in a really interesting way, you know? And yeah, it's just a very, um, you know, it points out some flaws, but I feel like it's overall pretty optimistic as well. Um, and yeah, it's just a, it's a really, it's a, it's a solid movie overall. Chris, have you seen Day the Earth, the Earth Stood Still? No, I haven't. I just realized I've only seen one Robert Weiss 
film and just West Side Story. Sound of Music. Um, oh, what? I have not seen. I have not seen Sound of Music. What? Um, yeah. <laughs> Brandon just jumped out the window. Three of the four walls uh, in Brandon's room are gone. <laughs> um but yes i like i think like the difficult thing for me with like i think like how do i put this like 1950s and going back from there is kind of like where my knowledge of like the era or like the the filmography of the time start to dwindle because i guess like i just haven't been exposed to that era very much but um i have like i have heard of this film and i've seen this poster everywhere and I guess, I don't know, I've always kind of, like, seen this po- this poster and been, like, it looked, like, I mean, like, the poster kind of does look like, like, a schlocky B-movie. Yeah. But, like, I entrust that, like, because, like, I'm reading this, um, the letterbox, uh, what's the word, logline, I guess, um, and that is a really interesting premise. I think that's, that can present a lot of really interesting themes and can really open up a discussion about our planet that I think even today is even more pertinent um but yeah i think this look this looks really cool i just have no idea i don't even know what this movie looks like because i mean i don't is that is the top image on this is that that's not a still is it or is that just artwork that's just artwork yeah it's it's black and white yeah um Mm. it's a lot i think it's the it's like it's the uh, arrival for that decade you know it's sort of kind of is that energy you know it's very philosophical it doesn't really like I expected it to be like, you know, invasion, this like the alien on the cover, the robot on the cover being like a main focus. Mm-hmm. And while what... it is, it's not about that. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. So my next movie, so. um, I think one of the most important sort of I I don't know if it's this a movement or like a a genre or something out of the fifties is sort of um, filmmakers' reactions to the to World War Two and how they sort of grapple those events in films. You know, I think there's a lot of great films that sort of communicate sort of the trauma that everyone suffered through one of the most insane events in our human history. You know, um. So I got films like I could have chosen. I was going to choose the first Godzilla because I think that's a very perfect uh, analogy for that. But I didn't want to pull that one out again. Um, I could have gone with uh, the, one of the first two human condition movies. I've finally seen those now. They're pretty fucking They're good. good. They're, They're really great. good. Um, I could have gone with I could have gone with you could argue War of the Worlds, you know. Um, yeah, you could also sort of, even though it's not that war, you could have argued paths of glory, you know, um, also sort of reactionary Brandon silent. I feel like it's going to come up soon. Uh, but I am going with a film from French director, Alain, uh, Rene Resne. I think that's his name. It's Hiroshima. Oh, fuck. Sorry. (laughs) Just kidding. It's not COVID. I, I don't have COVID. Uh, it's the movie's called Hiroshima Monomore. I didn't eat a taki either. And I'm fine. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, Hiroshima Monomore, um, kind of blew my mind. It does everything that I love about films that tackle such grand and 
sublime not i don't know i don't i don't know if i'd say sublime but just some such grandiose themes as re- uh, reconciling a giant war and the guilt and um the trauma that one feels and sort of simplifying it to a, a relationship between two people um a french woman and a japanese man um and the film sort of just it explores the relationship between these two two people who sort of lived very different lives during this time you know her being from europe and sort of the analogy of what her life was like uh sort of corresponding to like what the european experience was for the world war Two, and then what his life was like of course during uh sort of this uh, pacific theater of world war Two, and of course goes heavily into the the bombings of hiroshima and nagasaki that's why it's called hiroshima monomore because they they often explore the, the the city of hiroshima and like how that city is still reeling from that sublime tragedy you know um and it shows all like a lot of graphic imagery going through the places where uh that took the most damage seeing people that suffered the most from it you know and sort of this this trauma and guilt from both of those people and like because how their countries both handled each other during the war that sort of goes into their relationship on how they feel like they're like forbidden lovers you know and uh that they're not meant to be but they're really fighting against that and it is just it is a really special film and i i don't think either of you two have seen it um but i highly recommend it because i think both of you would very much like it um very important film yeah hiroshima i've i've heard like i've heard of this film and honestly ethan like i heard this film a little while ago um and like as soon as i heard of it i immediately got a weird sense for this like not weird sense like a sense for this film that it reminded me a lot of in the mood for love which surprises me because it doesn't like you weren't as big as big into in the mood for love uh or like that's true. I don't know. Just what, but like anyway, yeah. I like and I quickly just googled it. Like a lot of people, like on Google, like even there's a lot of results for like comparisons in between those two films. And I think there's probably a lot of like emotional and maybe even like social like um, parallels between them. Mm-hmm. But I'm very intrigued by this because this sounds really cool. Like a Japanese person and a French person, like having a conversation after World War II. That's that's like. That sounds like a real like that sounds like a YouTube video I would click on, but yeah. in the most complimentary way possible, if that makes right. sense. Right. Yeah. I mean, I gotta watch In the Mood for Love again. I watched that. I think I watched that before you did your amazing video essay on it, and sort of communicating how that film I think communicates Hong Kong's history in a very similar way, which I don't think I picked up on when I watched it for the first time, and I think I would appreciate a lot more on a rewatch. You know. Um, Brandon, what what about what about you? What, what was your I've been movie? meaning to, I'm meaning yeah. to watch this movie, but you know, I haven't really been watching movies lately. <laughs> <laughs> I've been too busy with trips to Florida and working <laughs> like really late nights. 
Yeah. Uh, and I hate to make excuses, but like this is honestly one of the next films I've been meaning to watch for a while now. It's just right. clicking play. You know how – have you ever had this moment where you're like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to love this movie, but I can't bring myself to click on it right now because it's not yep. the vibe? Like yeah. that's me with that movie. And I just want to make sure it's like the right situation so I like it the most I can because yeah. like it does sound very up my alley too. I love post-war movies. Like um, there are so many great movies that tackle – that anxiety about world war ii we'll get into it when we get into our 40s movies too because that was very fresh cut like some of them are borderline propaganda but some of them are really good uh and this like you're starting to get past the propaganda after the 40s and you're starting to get into like more serious takes on how the war affected people on a personal level and to me that's far more fascinating than what it did physically you know what i mean like yeah. the physical toll more of the mental strain of it absolutely yeah um would it would it give you a a, a a bigger nudge to watch it if i bought the criterion because i'm really considering no it. no it okay. wouldn't but because i just i just <laughs> we have the criterion channel so it's like i know we, but you I have the disc you know you got the physical you know yeah, that's true the, the physical Wi-Fi media disrupted at all you know it would be just clean like that you know, that's Nobody what would no chads would walk in and disrupt <laughs> no our movie going experience. They walk in our house while we're watching Hiroshima Monomore. <laughs> hey, hey, oh, start pulling out the phone. <laughs> oh my god, that's too complicated of a story to tell on Stacked. We'll do that another time. We just saw a bad. Ex- we had a bad show time at the card counter. Let's just say that. Yeah, and first time I've ever left the theater ever. And you can read all about it on my letterbox review for it. Uh. Anyways, okay, Chris, let's go into your second pick. Cool. Um, so Hiroshima Monomore, I feel like, you think, correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of deals with the fallout of World War II on a personal human level. Yeah. The movie that I'm about to pitch deals with the fallout of World War II on a societal, on a more broad American societal level. Um. The broad, an absolute oh, broad. Um, um, so my movie is another 1955 film directed by Nicholas Ray. It's Rebel Without a Cause. Oh, um, it's a good movie. That's a very, it's yeah, it's a good movie. Not a fun movie, at least in my opinion. Um, but yeah. Anyway, um, it's kind of a depressing movie, but uh, just from its title. Rebel Without a Cause kind of positions itself as kind of like an anthem for the, this kind of like defiant and rebellious generation of American youth, um, you know, standing against the traditional heteronormative societal values of its time. Um, and yeah, like this film really is what it does is it deals with the socio-political repercussions of the era because of the like the exacerbated tension between the United States and, and Russia. Um, so basically, um, at least this is the way that I've understood it, that in the 1950s, there was a kind of like a big promotion within American media and American like values that there was this kind of like, we got to keep it like a nuclear family, you know, like there's like that kind of archetype of American livelihood. And at least in the way that I've understood is that that kind of like, um, that kind of concept stood as a rejection to Soviet communism and any kind of subversion from that kind of image would 
be considered an exposure of like the fragility within the American capitalist system. Um, and I won't get into the specifics of every individual character for spoiler's sake, because there is a lot of intricacies within every character mm -hmm. and how they kind of depict the larger um, like sociopolitics of the time. Um, but largely this film um, or, and what they go through can be interpreted as like an allegory for how, of like conservative America's disillusionment with like the progressive and liberal driven values that would eventually come to rise in the counterculture era of the 1960s. Um, so yeah, in that way, this film could be understood as like a precursor to that time in American society where like, so it's like pre-1960s and we watched like kind of these two opposing ends of American society battle, which I just think is a really interesting depiction of that era because I feel like oftentimes you don't see those two kind of come to a direct head. And unfortunately in this film, you, you, will, you do see one side beat out the other in, in quite sad ways in certain areas. And yeah, that's why I think this movie is really interesting for the 1950s pick because it ha kind of posits the, like, the not only America as a country within and like within the global stage at the time, but also within itself, the kind of like dual, dual, duality, I guess, between conservative and liberal America. And mm -hmm. yeah, there's like a like you, there's a whole angle on this film you can read about like um, its representation of LGBT issues and things like that. So there's so much to go into, but I don't want to spoil it because I know that this is. Um, there's a lot, to, like every, basically if I mention anything about anyone, it could spoil something. So, but yeah, Rebel Without a Cause. Thoughts, anyone? Brandon? Great movie. Great movie. Um, I think, um, it's kind of ahead of its time with its themes, you know, it's not, it's not often you get a film that like kind of reads into what's happening in the moment, especially back in like the fifties and sixties, like think like people didn't want to do that a lot. You saw that in art house more often than you did in mainstream cinema, but here it's like you're starting to see a critique of the way parenting was done post World War II, in a way that was very detrimental to the way people were like raised uh, at the time, and you can kind of see it in how some of them act today, uh, because they act like their parents do, and the the movie's really all about parenting if you think about it. The way each of the kids within the movie um jim J judy and plato like act you know with with each other but also with their own parents and their friends it's like very toxic <laughs> in the sense this is like a very toxic movie but i i, I think it's an amazing movie at depicting that societal nature versus nurture argument here and how you can kind of see there's like a conflict going on uh between not only generations but but between like teenagers and the youth Mm. So this I don't know is, if you feel that. Well, I don't feel that because I haven't seen this movie. It's probably my biggest oh. blind spot, classical Hollywood blind spot. Um, all I know about this movie blind is spot. that <laughs> is that it was Tommy Wiseau's greatest inspiration for his acting was James Dean in this movie. That's all I know about it. I don't know anything else except for what you guys <laughs> just said. And now I'm dying to watch it. I really want to see what this movie's about. You know. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm fucking in. I might do that as soon as I can for more for my, my, my new day job. Ugh. Um, no, I love my job. Uh, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> they're listening. <laughs> they're listening. I don't know if they are. I don't know. I love my job. I love being productive. If, if you don't like it, if you don't, like I but it, I do. I do like, like okay. it. I like it a lot. I've. I can't Ethan, why don't you like your only, job? I do yeah. like my job. I've only been there for four days. I can't make any judgments right now. Okay, shut up. Shut up. <laughs> Brandon, talk about your last movie. In my last movie, Ethan mentioned earlier. He side eyed me. Paths of Glory. It's another. It does reckon with the post World War II effects because, like Stanley Kubrick, John Ford, all these classical, even Alfred Hitchcock, all these classical directors were somehow affected by the war in some way. Uh, be, be it that they were in countries fighting for the Allied powers, but also had to reckon with the after effects of it being that was terrible. We should never do that again. Only for the U.S. to get involved in another war immediately after World War II with the Korean War and then in the 1960s with the Vietnam War, both being disastrous to not only the U.S.'s public image, but also to the countries that they were occupying in general. Uh, so while Stanley Kubrick uh, is, I, I, was he a veteran? I, I feel like he might have been. Let me look was it up. He? Um, well, well, I don't know if he was or not, but he has such a grip in this movie about what it means to do the right thing, whether that be saving people's lives or holding back when you should be following orders. You know what I mean? And this is a movie set during World War One, where a colonel decides to review, refuse the order to commence a suicidal attack that will no doubt get all of the soldiers in his platoon killed. So he waits, and some deem him a coward for it. Uh, he waits, and as a result, they go after him legally in court for, for this charge of cowardice. And what is so fascinating about the movie is how it sort of tackles humanity and decision-making for the best and how necessarily people weren't meant for war, you know? This this is a very bad thing to have. Like, if you're an anti-war person and you haven't seen this, what are you doing with your life? Because it, like, it tackles violence in a way that is, like, traumatizing, but also in a way that is, like, enlightening. Because if you're not, like... It puts you in the position of this colonel, and he's he's definitely fearful of losing his life, but he's also thinking, is this really going to do me any good, do my country any good in this fight? And he's got a really good argument, and this movie is probably probably has like a top 20 ending for me of all time. It's just that good. Uh, yeah. Have you guys seen this? I know maybe Ethan has, because he mentioned it. I have. It. I have seen this movie. Um did you do you know how old he was when he made this movie? He Kubrick? Was, yeah, he was twenty eight years old. And this movie feels like it was made by someone who's directing for like decades, you know? Like a Spielberg or a Scorsese, where it's yeah. like, oh, they've had like ten films under their belt by now. But this was like his third or fourth, right? <laughs> I know. It's it's fucking insane. Um just like you said, just like the the tale of morality that this movie uh, presents is incredibly tragic, but like also uplifting of like how to be a good person in the most dire and darkest situations from people who are on your own side, you know, like the enemy in this movie isn't even the enemy that they're really fighting, you know, yeah. which is, it's fascinating. And, Kubrick is just able to to touch on such an 
interesting look of the human condition. I think human condition is a lot like Paths of Glory, where uh, Kirk Douglas is sort of talking to these three people who are considered guilty and how they're comprehending the last moments of their life, you know? Um, and each one has a different reaction, but, like, is just as valid from the last and captures, like, what people's reactions are if they were in the situation. It feels so real, you know? The performances are so good in this. It, like, stretches past that melodrama that I think Chris was talking about with the 50s kind of, like, was at its peak because it's, like, it's not that. It feels so real and unique to the moment. Yeah. hmm And it's just, you, you start to, like get you start to tap into kubrick's able to just like dive into the the human consciousness and and present these scarily human uh people you know um that he really takes advantage of in his in his later films to make it more of a horror effect you know but this one it's more it it is sort of horrific because it's the horrors of war you know and like what people will do to their own people who like who just want to win a war, you know, um, and yeah, it's a fucking crazy movie. Chris, what what have you what have you heard from Paths of Glory? So this is actually, I think, among okay, one, two, three, four, five, six. I think of I think Kubrick's eight main fil- like like his st- his main eight films. This is like the last one that I haven't seen. Um. So, yeah, I mean, like, I've, you know, I've never been disappointed by Kubrick. Every film that I've seen from him has elicited a very strong reaction from me. And all the time has been positive or, like, negative in a good way. Like, in a, like, a clockwork got a negative reaction out of me, but in a great way. If that makes <laughs> yeah. sense? Yeah, um, I feel that. But, yeah, this is, like, so this is, like, a blind spot for me in Kubrick's filmography. But I... Have I actually don't know much about this film. Like, I know the poster because I've seen this poster everywhere um, and everything you guys have told me. And it sounds fantastic. And it's only 88 minutes long, yeah. which surprises me easy, for a war film. Easy watch. It's easy. It's surprisingly easy because it's, like, so gripping mm-hmm. that it, like, goes by like that. And comprehensive, yeah. Yeah, but it doesn't – it's so easy in the sense, like, it doesn't really – do a ton but it has a lot in it it's not dense necessarily but it i don't know it feels rich it's mm. kind of hard to explain right but yeah yeah good good shit um all right my last film is a film that we i have talked about before um but i had to bring it back uh just cuz i think this film is so so amazing it is of course you can't talk about the 50s without talking about the master, Akira Kurosawa. This is one of his best oh. decades of filmmaking. Oh. I, I was waiting for, I, th- I was like, why haven't one of you said yeah. anything about Kurosawa I, yet? I saved the best director for last, baby. Oh, this guy again. This fucking, this bloke. Um, yeah, I'm going with Rashomon. I could have gone with Seven Samurai, but I decided to go with Rashomon just because I think it does something really special. Uh, for the film medium. Uh, I don't mean to sort of spit out my own thesis here, but uh, just the way this movie deals with subjectivity, it, it, it fucking floors me and how 
in, instead of asking the viewer, I, I just feel like I'm repeating my thesis here. Instead of asking the viewer whose story is correct, it's rather asking the what is the validity of reality itself and how people view things and experience their own realities and what is real to them. Um, and you see that so well. Uh oh. Oh no. Did Chris go? Oh fuck. The power, the power went out. Went All right. When while Chris <laughs> I'm going to take while, a while Chris's power goes back that. on. Yeah. While Chris's power goes back on. Brandon. Let's have a little Brandon and Ethan show, shall we? Uh, uh I went to Orlando. Yeah, let's talk about your Orlando trip. How was it? Uh, I, 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 coast, huh? I, I, I took a day trip to Orlando without telling any of my friends except for Ethan and Chris because we had to tell them because of Stacked and because he wanted to come down. And it was amazing. It was spontaneous. It was fun. It was just so great to do something for me like a where I could like go on these like coasters that I've been wanting to go on for months now. And like without the fear of COVID because vaccination and masking, you know, I have a bunch of antibodies for it because I had COVID like last November. Um, so I feel pretty good. Um, mm -hmm. It was just a wonderful experience. Mako and Velocicoaster heavily recommend um, SeaWorld Orlando and Universal Islands of Adventure, but support the coasters. Don't support the animal problems that SeaWorld has. Support the coasters. <laughs> but aren't you supporting that by giving them money? <laughs> You're right, but I don't care. <laughs> but I don't. Care. That makes me. That makes wow. me such a bad person. That makes me a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> But they were on animal rescue programs, so hey, they, uh, what they do on the side, <laughs> it's better <laughs> than their main, their main show gigs. I don't yeah. support the shows. I don't go to that. I don't do that. I just ride the coasters. I just like. I just want to ride the fucking coasters. I know, isn't it it's horrible not... that your new favorite coaster of all time? It's second favorite. Oh, what's your favorite? I thought that's also Velocicoaster is no. your favorite. Yeah, because it does more. Because that that ride has everything. It has airtime. It has hang time. It has inversions. Uh, it has theming, which is great. It has launches. It's a great ride. Well, and just like right. that, look at that. He's back. Okay, I'm good. Awesome. We're rolling. We're good. All right, all right, and we're back, everyone. Sorry about that. Chris's uh, power went out, uh, but we're back. We're running, rolling. Uh, Rashomon. Yeah. Great movie, great uh, philosophical conversation about what is subjectivity and what is the essence of reality. If you want to learn more about it and what I have to say about it, go watch my thesis. Um, love Toshiro Mifune. God, what a great performance in this movie. So good. What do you guys think of Rashomon? We've all seen it. <laughs> no <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> Did okay. Brandon? Wait, yeah, why Brandon is Brandon freeze? frozen? We're in the same house. What the fuck? Yeah, he's definitely frozen. Look at his um, the fan <laughs> behind him. He's frozen. All right, take a screenshot of this. Just screenshot it. <laughs> what the fuck's going on? <laughs> what the hell? What is happening, Brandon? 
Fix your damn Wi-Fi. It's my Wi-Fi too. I don't know what's why am I good, but he's not. What? What if he's just sitting incredibly? I can still? I can hear I can hear Brandon giggling from the other room. <laughs> Ethan, you're next. Oh no! Please, Brandon, where are you? Log off and log back on. Quit out of the room. Oh my God, hold on. I'll go fight. See what he's up to. Let's fit it. Okay, let's finish it right here. Uh, no, this is gonna be awful because you can't hear him. Yeah, I can be right here. I'll, I'll just. You can't listen to Chris. <laughs> but then okay. it's gonna pick it up with a mic. It's okay. All right, Brandon, you say what you have to say about Rashomon right now. It's a really good movie. It's got good subjectivity. I love hearing many sides of the same story. It's pretty fun. It's a pretty fun movie. I don't get why people get bored during film aesthetics or film history screenings. It's Tori. Yeah, Tori. God I'm calling damn. her out. I'm calling her fucking no, out. Call She's her not out. Gonna, she can't. She won't listen to this episode. But I'm calling her out. <laughs> All right, go fix your computer while Chris talks about this. No, it's not gonna come back up. What do you mean it's not gonna come back up? <laughs> it's it's updated. It blew up. It's taking forever because I think I don't know why my Wi-Fi went out, but yours did. <laughs> okay. Um. All right, Chris. What do you think about Rashomon? Yeah, this is a great movie. I think the like. I think a lot of people that see this movie for the first time immediately kind of dismiss it as like a very pretentious movie about, uh, I don't know, Japanese director, I don't care. Because, you know, I hate to say it, but a lot of the people that do say that shit are like dumbass film kids who don't watch movies. Anyway, um, but yes. Tori. (laughs) Sorry, Tori. (laughs) Um, I'm kidding, Tori. I love you. But Rashomon is fantastic because I think it does such a great job with kind of bringing about this really intricate and well, just like well-written, like dialogue about the nature of truth, you know, and how truth is constructed. And that's reflected in, that's kind of self-reflexive of the film medium, you know, because the kind of like, like we kind of what's, I forgot where I heard this quote, but it's like, uh, we accept the nature of the world that uh, with which we are presented. Truman Show. Truman Show. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> like you, you, you immediately accept what you see and what you hear, but or what you want to believe. And you know, it's a movie about bias, a movie about the way we understand truth and reality. It's and it's all kind of it's the entire film is basically just a court case, but it's so much more than that. And I think that's what makes this great. And yeah, that is my. Uh, that's my spiel on Rashomon. Great Hell movie. yeah. Very good. He's just standing behind me as we record. <laughs> He's like my hype man. Yeah. I, you, yeah. Like, for our audience, I hope you guys are tuning in with our fun technical <laughs> difficulties this week. It's <laughs> <laughs> like the great power outage and the great uh, computer shit, shit show. <laughs> oh my god. So, you know how we had the great bathroom break in the beginning? Yeah, of this the is going to be like the great blackout of 2021. <laughs> That's what we're going to label. I'm going to have to like make a custom thumbnail for it and everything. Uh, all right. Well, Chris, Cr- what's your final movie? Chris, what's your final movie? I'm going to have to communicate to you. <laughs> it's gonna be, no worries. No you're all good. going to want to listen to this because I'm just going to have to repeat to him. You can just say so, Just oh, like give him, just give him the lowdown. Just give him okay. the, the spark notes of what I say. <laughs> like the most light spark notes. <laughs> Okay, um, my movie is actually a movie Brandon convinced me to see, and I'm glad he did. 
you convinced him to see this movie, and he's glad that he did. Okay, it is what one is of it? my favorite movies ever made. It is 1953, directed by Yasujiro Ozu, Tokyo Story. What the fuck? The cat, cat in the Hat's not a 50s film, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's Tokyo. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really yes, um, let's talk about Tokyo Story. Yes, Great fucking this is movie. A, I'm, I came close, Ethan, to also picking um, a Kurosawa movie. I almost picked Ikaru, but I wanted to pick this film just because Yasujiro Ozu doesn't get talked about enough. And frankly, like, um, you, can you t- tell us to Brandon... I have resisted seeing any more of Ozu's films just because this one impacted me so much that I'm, I can't, I'm scared of doing it again. He's resisted seeing any Ozu film because Tokyo Story is impacted so much and he can't do it again. Well, I gotta tell you, none of them are like as tragic as this one. I yeah, gotta say, I like that. he's made some pretty happy movies, but Good morning, I heard there's a movie he made where he, where like farting is a theme or something. Where farting is a theme. Have you heard that? Farting. Is it's a like theme? A, it's in one of his comedy oh, ones. I don't that's know. That's Good Morning. I mean, good Morning. Yeah, I think it's Good Morning. All of his movies has farting as a theme. <laughs> no, no, no. Just <laughs> this is so. I... <laughs> this is surreal. Anyway, yeah. let me get right, let me get to this about story. Yes. So, um, you know, I'm more than certain there's a way to view this film in the context of post-war Japan. But when I saw this, I really saw it through this kind of intimate, family-driven, and personal lens. Um, you know, I've always really admired directors that are able to elicit a very visceral emotional reaction with very little resources. And Ozu does this really beautifully. He makes he paints this portrait of a family that is incredibly soulful and down to earth. Um, yeah. So yeah, the film surrounds the Hira, um, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Hirayama family. Um, and its focus is on the relationship between two children and their parents and their elderly parents um, as, as they navigate the twilight years of their life. It's this deeply human film that never strays into being too pretentious or alienating. Like, because I feel like when you deal with philosophical films, it can start to get alienating. But mm-hmm. I feel like he treads a really great line with this. It's very human and honest. Um, it's a very simple movie, but in the best way possible. It's about the unspoken connection between a parent and their child. Um, yeah, and I think that's fucking beautiful. And I, artic- I articulate this a lot better in my letterbox review. Um, and yeah, I highly recommend. And let me just tell you this, Ethan. As you know, it's common for movies to make me tear up. Yeah. And rare for movies to make me cry. But it is like one in a... Like probably I can only give you five movies in my entire life, which is relatively speaking still quite a lot, that um, have made me ugly cry. And when I say ugly cry... Like, I'm not talking, like, a couple tears. I'm talking, like, like full streams, throats oh, closing up. I'm laying on the ground and shit's coming out my nose, you know? Yeah. Like, this movie connects to me in a very deep way. And, yeah, I think this is a fantastic movie and one of my favorite movies ever made. Yeah. Tokyo Story. fucking movie. Yeah, I mean, it is just... It's such a great movie about um, capturing the stages, of, like different stages in people's lives and like the stuff that they have to go through. I think absolutely the most tragic stuff is with the older couple, um, especially with the father figure and just like how he's coming to term with the end of his life and stuff like that, you know? Um, yeah, it it is. It's kind of like, I wouldn't say it's a, it's not a hard movie to watch because like, it's just such a lovely one. 
and it's just like it makes you it made me like I just want to like call my parents after this movie, you know, and just be like, hey, I, I care about you. I'm not going to I'm not going to send you around to all my siblings houses and stuff like that, you know, uh, and just all that shit like that. It's it's such a beautiful movie. Um, Brandon. What do you have to say about Tokyo Story? It's a rare instance of the original or the remake being better than the original. This is a remake? I, I didn't even know this was a remake. What? It's a remake of a, a 30s film in America called Make Way for Tomorrow. But they repositioned wow. it to meet the narrative of a, a, a Japanese family post-World War II because Ozu was so impacted by it. And it's better. Uh, I might mention it on our 30 stack if we get to it. Um, but it's a very sad movie as well. It's like probably notoriously one of the... <laughs> <laughs> Why, friend of the show, Wyatt's review for Make Way for Tomorrow is, I was laughing at the old lady annoying everyone playing cards. Then I cried for the rest of the movie. <laughs> um, it was my 2000th movie as well, so it was that was very impactful. Uh, Make Way for Tomorrow, not Tokyo Story. Mm-hmm. But with Tokyo Story, I feel like it's kind of doing the the legwork that this movie didn't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it's tackling uh post war anxiety, like how how do you treat your parents after the war because it kind of wrecks your lifestyle. Uh, it, that goes for everyone, but especially on the losing side. And then it also has like uh this additional like societal child versus parent relationship, right? Um, that you kind of see in like Rebel Without a Cause and Nature versus Nurture and how does parenting work when your kids are adults or right. near adulthood. And that is very impactful as well. It's a very emotional experience. Yeah, well said. Very, very good movie. Alrighty. Oh my God, we have quite a list here. Quite a stack of films. This is gonna this is gonna be hard. I'm not gonna lie. We got a lot of hitters here. Um so Let's, of course, before we figure out this final stack, I don't even know how we're going to do this. <laughs> this is just, this is just going to be a fucking mess. I hope you're, everyone strap in for this. Um, Brandon, list off your three films. Like, I have them right there for you, so you can't mess up the order. You're literally looking at the screen and reading them. I, please, please mess it up. <laughs> the, the wrong man. Okay. Paths of Glory. Fuck you! <laughs> no! Read it like how it is! And the baby earth stood still. God damn it. Alright, my films were North by Northwest, Hiroshima Mon Amour, and Rashomon. Chris? I had All That Heaven Allows, Rebel Without a Cause, and Tokyo Story. Okay. I'm honestly glad we didn't uh, double or triple stack on this one. Yeah, yeah this, is a good, this is a good variety. Good variety, indeed. Um... We I, okay. I think the first thing is that we have such a wide variety. I think we should hone into that. I think we should pick one melodrama, one and we melodrama? have a lot of we have a no, lot I of agree. melodramas from the entire stack. Yeah. Okay. okay. Brandon has a pitch. All right. I think we should go with a war film. So Hiroshima Monomore, because I feel like it it nails both the Japanese and American allies' perspective, even though she's European, right? Yeah. Uh, and then I think we go with the melodrama, something like Rebel Without a Cause, because it embodies, I think, the classical... I mean, both All the Heaven Laws and Rebel Without a Cause do, so either mm-hmm. of them would work. Uh, that, like, the iconic melodramas of the time. And then I think we go with the sci-fi with the Davios stuff. That sounds good to me. I would lean towards All That Heaven Allows. What do you What do you think, Chris? 
I'm just trying to think because we have. So I definitely think the day the Earth is still is great mm-hmm. because I think that sci-fi edge is fantastic. Yeah. Um, hmm. Though I think I definitely like the uh, Hiroshima Monomore is great, but I also kind yeah. of feel like Tokyo Story should be here. <laughs> okay, he said all it's great, but he feels like Tokyo Story should be here, and that's a good melodrama too. Yeah, that's also a melodrama technically. It does it's, cover post-war anxiety, and too, that's also but... three different countries. Because although this takes place in Japan, it's a French film. Mm. Hiroshima. Yeah, it's by a French director. So it takes place in France. No, it takes place in Japan, but it's a French film. It's made by a French director, and they speak French and and Japanese and English. Uh, they do. They feel too samey, I guess. But I've not. I've not seen. That's that. a thing. That's that's kind of a difficult thing because I'm realizing that like we we're kind of like honing into similar perspectives if we go both. Northwest. Yeah. Because it's more of a thriller, and it covers that Hitchcock Hitchcock angle that we're kind of like missing. Yeah. Uh, I'm just okay. Oh yeah, we don't have Hitchcock in yeah. here. A drama, a melodrama, uh, a thriller, and then a sci-fi. Okay, I have a proposal. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, start with or not not no order. The day the Earth stood still. Okay. Day the Earth stood still. Um. Uh. Hmm. I feel like we should have Hitchcock. So I would say north, north by northwest. North by Northwest. And Tokyo Story. And then Tokyo Story. Honestly, I feel like Mon Amour fits better. And I'm willing to shut to get shut out for this one. Because I feel mm. like those three pair really we well. No, he said he'd rather have Hiroshima Mon Amour than Tokyo Story. But wait, that's what I pitched. <laughs> what? Really? Yeah. So it would be North by Northwest, Hiroshima Mon Amour, and the day the Earth stood still? Oh, uh, but why? no, but we gotta have a melodrama in there. Yeah, and I don't think... But is Mona more a melodrama? I don't know. Because it seems sad. Uh, I, guess, I don't know. Yeah, it kind of is. Really? Yeah. Mm. Okay. Oh, but I do want to. I feel like I feel like we could use Tokyo Story again, though. You That's know? what I'm thinking. Like it could fit into like family like, movies. Or what if or, we did like Japanese films? You know? And we yeah. I don't know. When we watch enough of his movies. Yeah, or that. Um, hate to cut out the Cirque, though. Uh, okay, let's do it. If you're okay with that, Chris, I think we. I think that's a good stack. Yeah, I think I think this is worth it. I think we have a nice variety, but also like still have like the soul of the 1950s intact. Okay, so the stack. Let me just communicate, Brandon. The stack is, uh, out of, not in order yet. It's the day the Earth is still. North by Northwest and Hiroshima one or more. Okay. Honestly, in terms of order, I would go North by Northwest first. Yeah, not a good end. Then well, Day the Earth Stood Still. No. Mm. Then Hiroshima one or more. <laughs> then Hiroshima one or more. Then the Day the Earth Stood Still. Which has an incredible end. Yeah. And you all know why I'm picking that one last. <laughs> in our last movie. In our last film. You get to see them first. <laughs> I get to see it in person. That's right. Uh, is that cool with you, Chris? Is that a good order? Yeah. All I right. don't know if I'm going to be able to pitch any of these for the final stack. You haven't seen like... any of these. Yeah. Wait. <laughs> That's fine. That's okay. Which one do you want to talk about the most, though? Which one are you the most confident talking about? <laughs> I don't know shit about these movies. Um... <laughs> this never happened. This is like episode. Two. You know what? Give Give me one. 
And let's just see how I do. Because we've dissected these movies already. Let's just see how I do. Okay. Uh, I'll give you the first one. Why don't you kick it off with North by Northwest? Um, so this movie has the greatest edit idiom of all time with a, a train going into a tunnel. And that's all you need to know. Alfred Hitchcock, baby. And that's Let's why go. it's one of the best films of the 50s. The train going to the tunnel. That's right. And our, <laughs> Such a <significant> part of <laughs> <laughs> and our second film is Hiroshima Mon Amour. Uh, one of the most profound uh, sort of reflections of a decade of horrors. Now, it wasn't a full decade of horrors, but just a couple years in that past decade of horrors of World War II and an intimate story between two people from completely different sides of the world coming together between all of the intense emotions that they felt in regards to each other and in regards to their place in the world and in regards to these tragic events. Brandon, what's our last film? What's our last film, Brandon? And our last film. Yeah! It feels so good in my ear. <laughs> oh, man. Is The Day the Earth Stood Still a calm meditation about war, about our, our connection as human beings, and about the Earth as a whole? It's fun to be seen from an alien perspective. <laughs> it's fun to be seen from an alien perspective. Add it to the fridge, Dan. <laughs> And there it is. That stacks on the fridge. Wow. This was probably the most disastrous episode of Stacked. We were going no, 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 no. That was no. not our most. We've had. No, you're right. Worse. That wasn't. That wasn't <laughs> our most disastrous. This is tech. This is in terms of the technology, technically the most disastrous. But yeah, on a technical In terms level. of our presentation skills, that one goes to high movies. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I'd like to thank you all for listening to this very chaotic episode of Stacked. Uh, I feel like, what, what what do I feel like right now? I feel like, you know when Howl's moving castle and the castle's just like falling apart, but it's still going along? You know, I feel like that's where we are right now. Like everything's falling apart. Brandon's computer is crashing. Chris's power plant by his house is blowing up. But <laughs> we persist and we give the quality content for you good listeners. Nevertheless. We persisted. Wakanda forever, baby. <laughs> 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 That's how we're ending it. <laughs>